0: Good morning to everyone. Please take God's Word and turn with me to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible with you, again, take a look around under the seats. Uh, You'll find one somewhere. They're scattered throughout the auditorium. Also, let me draw your attention to the, the worship guide, the bulletin you were Handed on the way in. There are sermon notes in there. Keeping in step with the Spirit, entirely optional. They're there for your use if you, if you want them. I pray they are, they are useful. But for now, follow along, please, as I read in Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. I'm going to go as far as verse 25. These verses constitute a section, a unit. And so hear the word of the Lord. On display before us in these verses, again, a single unit, a single section, is a great conflict, a great battle, a battle, as Paul himself describes it, uh, between the flesh and the spirit. A word of clarification. Before we jump back into this text where we've been for a few weeks now, a word of clarification. Uh, last night I was uh, perusing the bookshelves at home and I uh, picked up a volume by uh, Robert Louis Stevenson called The Master of Ballantrae. And uh, one of my favorite books, I haven't read it now for some years, and just sort of thumbing through it and reminiscing of this book it tells the story of two brothers who lived in the mid-1700s and lived through what is known as the Jacobite Jacobite Revolution. Um, and these two brothers decided, uh, look, if we side with the Jacobites, the rebels, and they lose, we're wealthy landowners, we'll lose everything. But if we side with the king and the Jacobites are actually successful in overthrowing the king, then we're going to lose everything. So here's what we should do. One brother will go fight with the Jacobites, and the other brother will fight for the king. And this is the story. And in this tale, in this novel, Robert Louis Stevenson is actually depicting that struggle between good and evil. Because one brother, he identifies as good. And the other brother, he identifies as evil. Good versus evil And this struggle, as played out between these two sons, these two brothers. It is a tale that has been told on countless occasions throughout mankind's history. You can find it in novels. You can find it in ballads. You can find it in songs. You can find it in poems. This great struggle between good and evil. This struggle on the one hand between doing what I know is right and doing what I know is wrong. Our world understands it. And our world enters into it. Here's what I want to make clear. It is not the battle depicted in these verses. That battle, with which we're all familiar, has absolutely nothing to do with the battle that is described in these verses. Our world probes the battle that fallen man experiences. An inward struggle between good and evil. An inward struggle as the remnants, if you like, of of his conscience. His knowledge of the law and will of God implanted in man at the time of creation. And as man seeks to throw that off and yet cannot escape it, and wrestles with his parentage, wrestles with human government, wrestles with societal norms, and wrestles with that small, still voice in the back of his head, which says, that's right, that's wrong. There is this internal struggle that the fallen man experiences between good and evil. But please understand this. It is a struggle of the flesh. It's all flesh. It is not the struggle, the battle that Paul is depicting in these verses. The conflict that Paul lays out for us beginning in verse 13 through verse 25 is the experience of the believer, the Christian, and of the Christian alone. It is the battle between the flesh, what we are by nature, Fallen human nature. Having, yes, been created in the image of God, that image now blurred, that image now corrupted, whereby human nature is fallen. The flesh, that is who we are in the sight of God. But by the new birth, the Spirit of God has entered in. And from that moment, we embark on a conflict. It is a conflict that the natural man the unbeliever knows absolutely nothing about. It's impossible for him to know anything of it. His struggle is simply the struggle of the flesh. Ours is a struggle between the flesh and the spirit. I trust you've got this by now, these verses. I've summed them up for you a couple of times. Here it is, one last time. I should make promises I can't keep. Perhaps the last time I will sum these verses up for you. Seven statements. And they correspond to the notes right there. If you're using your sermon notes, your bulletin, there they are. Those first seven points that we must be clear on. And if we get these seven, you have the text more or less in its entirety. Point number one, there is a sin desiring principle called the flesh. It's a motivational desire inclination. We are all born with it. We are all born, as I've said before, self-aholics. We are born lovers of self, and our self-love shapes, corrupts, influences every thought, every word, every deed. That is the flesh. You cannot escape it, and the flesh, please understand me, is at enmity with God. We are haters of God by nature. There is a sin-desiring principle called the flesh. Point number two, there is a God-desiring principle called the spirit. That begins at the new birth. The spirit of God enters in. The flesh does not go away. We only have one nature. Do not fall into this trap of thinking we have two natures. To have two natures is to be two humans. We only have one nature. We are who we are. And we have the flesh. It is corrupt by virtue. Our nature is corrupt by virtue of the fall. The Holy Spirit has now entered in. He dwells within and he brings illumination, understanding. And he brings a softening of the heart. And he brings an inclination toward God, whereby now, yes, we still have this sin-desiring principle active within us. But now there's another inclination and it has been born in us, produced in us. By the Holy Spirit, it is a desire to know and to do God's will. Point number three, the spirit and the flesh are two semi-intact motivational systems within us, which oppose each other. They do not get along. They are striving for supremacy, hence the battle, hence the conflict. Point number four, we must walk by the spirit. That is Paul's command in the 16th verse I say, walk by the Spirit. It is a way of life. Point number five, walking by the Spirit, what does it mean? It means growing in the fruit of the Spirit. And we have that fruit listed for us, beginning in verse 22. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That fruit all flows From that principle of love for God, where love for self reigns supreme, that fruit will never, ever be evident. That fruit cannot coexist with that principle of self-love. It flows from that principle, that inclination of love for God. Point number six, when we do walk like that and the fruit of the Spirit is growing in us, we're walking by the Spirit, what happens? We don't gratify the desires of the flesh. Again, back to verse 16. It's Paul's central thought. I say, walk by the Spirit. Live like this. The fruit of the Spirit manifest in you. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. They will be pushed out. They will be subdued. And the seventh point I want us to understand is this. What I have just described, this walking by the Spirit, this is true freedom all the way back to the 13th verse, Paul's opening statement in this section, for you were called to freedom, brothers. This is true freedom. It gets sickening, doesn't it, as we look around at our age and the society in which we live, and this misplaced celebration of freedom, which is basically a celebration of what? Indulgence? That I can can do this uh, whenever I want. I can indulge whatever craving I please. I am a responsible adult. There are no barriers. There are no no boundaries. There are no stipulations. As long as I'm not hurting anyone else, I am free to do as I please. My friend, if you fall into that thinking, I will state it uncategorically today. You are a slave of the worst kind. That is not freedom. That is bondage. That is bondage to the flesh. Freedom is what? Oh, it comes by the Spirit. Freedom is to be free from the flesh. Freedom is to be free from that principle of self-love. Freedom is to be liberated from that notion that I will define my happiness and I will find my happiness whenever, with whomever, however I please. That is not freedom. It is bondage of the worst kind. Freedom comes by the Spirit, whereby that principle of self-love is subjugated. Now, out of love for God, we walk by the Spirit. Walking by the Spirit, we grow in our conformity to the likeness of God. Growing in our conformity to the likeness of God, we increase in the enjoyment of the blessed God. Oh, my friend, that is freedom true freedom. Now, the question we might ask is this, and a couple of you have asked me already this morning. You've asked me, you know, I I get everything we've looked at so far. We picked it up in verse 13 a few weeks ago. Last Sunday, we finished off in verse 23, and and I'm I'm tracking. I understand this, and the seven points you just rhymed off. I, I didn't even have to fill in those blanks. I've already got that all memorized. I'm good. My question, my query is this, sort of the how. Okay, I I get it, these points, but just how how does this take place 24-7, day in, day out? The answer to that question resides in verses 24 and 25. Let me read them again for you. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. And so in answer to the question, how, I want to give you four points, four truths. Four truths which enter the mind, we embrace them, we understand them cognitively, that's fine. Four truths which enter into the inner recesses of our soul, they embrace our hearts. And four truths that we determine to live by. Here is truth number one. We belong to Christ. 24th verse, opening statement and those who belong to Christ Jesus. Obviously, some people don't. Some people do. I suppose in one sense, everyone who has ever lived, currently living, ever will live, belong to Christ Jesus by virtue of creation. Creator, creature, that's true. Uh, It's true, though, specifically in reference to his people, of uh, Those who are saved, uh, we could celebrate the fact that we belong to him by virtue of election. He chose us out of this mass of fallen humanity before the foundation of the world. We could celebrate the fact that he owns us by virtue of redemption. He purchased us. He rescued us, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but by his own precious blood, blood of inestimable value. We could celebrate the fact that we belong to him by virtue of regeneration. I've already alluded to it. That day, that moment, as Christians, we were unbelievers, non Christians, in a moment of time. The Spirit of God entered in, and the greatest of all miracles occurred. We were raised from spiritual death to spiritual life, and the Holy Spirit has indwelt us ever since. Yes, we belong to Christ by virtue of election, redemption, and regeneration. I don't think Paul has any of them in view in this text. Although I don't doubt for, for one moment, I don't think for one moment that they're far from view. What he has primarily in view is our union with Christ. We belong to Christ Jesus. There was a moment when the Lord Jesus right now ascended in glory. There he sits at the right hand of the Father, all invested with all power and authority and dominion and glory and majesty. And there, I, please, I, please, I pray you understand this to some extent. Please understand, there his human nature is filled with the Holy Spirit. Just as when he lived here on earth during the days of his humiliation, he was filled and refilled with the Holy Spirit. All of his ministerial gifts Arose from that filling, the fruit of the Spirit, so gloriously evident in the personage of the Lord Jesus Christ, flowed from that filling. And now he has filled to the utmost his humanity in glory with the Holy Spirit. And the Father sends the Spirit through the Son into the lives of his people. Whereby when that Holy Spirit enters in and takes hold of us, we are immediately made one. Brought into union with whom? The resurrected and exalted Lord Jesus Christ. I think there's a little more going on to the Lord's Supper than we often recognize. I really do. We are in fellowship with the glorified Christ and we live by faith feeding upon the Lord Jesus Christ and we are brought into union with Him. This is a union that belongs to each person And every Christian, to be a Christian, is to be one with Jesus Christ. It belongs to everyone, every believer. Oh, his divine power, celebrates Peter, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. It is this union by which Christ communicates, All of his graces, all of his blessings, all of his gifts to us. Paul writes in Colossians 2.10, you have been filled in him. Oh, it is this union that speaks of his ardent affection for us. Ephesians 5.30, he cherishes us because we are members of his body. I don't have time to go out down that road this morning. Maybe I should go down that road. Maybe you're here and that's all you need to hear this morning, sister, brother. I don't know. He cherishes us because we are members of his body. Uh, there's the answer to every sorrow. There's the answer to every affliction. There's the answer to every type of suffering under the sun. The Lord Jesus Christ, God himself, cherishes us because we belong to him. We are members of his body. Oh, says Handley Moore, to grasp this deep yet simple fact is to pour a new light into the heart and a new power into the life. We belong to Jesus Christ. Here's the second truth we must understand in answer to the question, how? Here it is, number two. We have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Where did I get that from? It's just the second half of verse 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, when it comes to interpreting that statement, there are two possibilities. There are two possibilities. It might refer to the present. Uh, Paul might be saying, look, this is something we do. We belong to the Lord Jesus. And so daily we we crucify the flesh. Uh, That might be his point. Or he might be referring to a past experience a once-for-all experience. Uh, no, what I'm thinking of is something that has happened in the past, that when we became united with Christ, we became one with him by the Holy Spirit, we became one with him in his death, his burial, and resurrection, and therefore, by virtue of that union, uh, what transpired on the cross is ours, and therefore, we have crucified the flesh with all its passions and desires. Past or present? I lean toward the past, the past although the present is also certainly in view. We can't so easily divide them or separate them. But I think Paul is basically building on, turn back there just for a moment, back in chapter 2, to what he has stated so clearly and emphatically earlier in this epistle, chapter 2, verse 20. He celebrates, writing, I have been crucified with Christ. It's happened. Once for all, I have been crucified with Christ. That when the Lord Jesus Christ hung upon the cross, yes, he died, he was buried, he rose again. But please understand, I am now one with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so God treats me as if I had done those things in my person. It's marvelous, folks. God treats those who belong to Christ As if we perform those things, his crucifixion, his burial, and his resurrection in our person. He imputes those things to us. So as far as Paul is concerned, this is a reality. I have been crucified with Christ. Dead, buried, resurrected. It is no longer I who live. Therefore, when I see myself and consider myself, I still see me. That is the flesh, corrupt human nature, hanging on the cross. That's where it is. And that's where I've left it. It is no longer I who live, but it is now Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I think Paul is building on that. Back in chapter 5, 24th verse, those who belong to Christ Jesus, those who are in union with him, they have crucified the flesh, that old, sinful, corrupt, fallen human Nature, positionally in Christ, me. I died upon Calvary's cross. And God looks at me, He treats me as if I had performed those things in my person because I am now so inextricably wound with His beloved Son in union with Him. The third truth builds into verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, But I've crucified the flesh. I've died upon Calvary's cross. That means the life I now live, I live by Christ Jesus. I live by the Spirit. It's the Spirit that's caused me to be born again. Let us also walk by the Spirit. A couple of things grammatically. Stay with me. A couple of little notes grammatically. If we live by the Spirit, in the Greek, it is a first-class conditional clause. Meaning what? The word would be better translated, since... We live by the Spirit. This is not a hypothetical statement. He's not saying, if, if we happen to live by the Spirit. No, 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 there's no uncertainty here. Given the fact we live by the Spirit. Because we live by the Spirit. Since we live by the Spirit. And notice another little s- grammatical nuance. In the original, that phrase, by the Spirit. If we live by the Spirit, again at the end of the verse, let us also walk by the Spirit. That phrase, two times, two times, They actually stand together side by side, shoulder to shoulder, in the midst of the verse. That's interesting. And so what is Paul's point? Let me put it to you in just different English. Since we live by the Spirit, by the Spirit, let us also walk. What is the point he's making? It's again, it's the indicative and it is the imperative. It is on the one hand, our position in the Lord Jesus Christ and on the other hand, the experience that flows from our position in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is our identity on the one hand as those who belong to Christ Jesus. And on the other hand, the fruit, the life that flows from that new identity. In slightly different terms, Paul's point is this. Living by the Spirit is the root. It's who we are as Christians. We now live by the Spirit. Walking by the Spirit is The fruit. A couple of pastoral notes. If this is true, do you know what it means, my friend? It means there is absolutely no room for pessimism in the Christian life. Well, I hear you. But my sin is too strong. Friend, you don't get it. You don't get it. Oh, I hear you. I understand what Paul's saying here, but, um, you know, the flesh, you know, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And here I am. I've been a believer now 25 years. I'm exactly the same person I was 25 years ago. And what do you expect? The flesh. It's just terrible. And sin. That's just got too hold, too strong of a hold on me. Pessimism, 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 pessimism. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Oh, how we must rehearse exactly who we are in the sight of God and exactly what we are by virtue of the new birth. Yes, please hear me. As Christians, the flesh has not gone away. And it will not go away this side of glory. Yes, please understand me. Make no misunderstanding. May there be no misunderstanding. That the, the flesh continues to trouble us. And it continues to torment us. Yes, there is a measure of agony and difficulty involved now in our Christian sojourn. And yes, as I've stated so many times, we are in a battle. We are in a conflict And we need a wartime mentality. True, 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 true. But the pessimistic spirit and attitude that prevails far too often among some of God's people is inexcusable in the light of Scripture. And it leaves me with really only one conclusion. That the individual who thinks like that is simply making an excuse for their conduct. It's too difficult. Why try flesh is too strong. It's got too much of a hold. So I'm a, I'm a Roman seven man through and through. I'm never going to get any better. And on and on and on it goes. So why even try? Why even bother? Uh, that is not Pauline thinking. And that is not gospel thinking. No room for pessimism. Pastorally, there's no room for passivism or passivity. And so I have encountered that individual. God is sovereign in all of this, isn't he? Amen and amen. God rules, doesn't he? And um, God's counsels and decrees and purposes and intentions are eternal. Amen and amen. But too many Christians turn God's sovereignty into an excuse for spiritual inertia. Spiritual inertia. The Spirit of God has entered in since we live by the Spirit. What are we now called to do? Yes, in response to the Spirit. Yes, we are simply working out in terms of Paul's language in the book of Philippians. We're simply working out what the Spirit of God has worked in. But what do we now do? We walk. We get busy. We walk by the Spirit. And so Paul stresses Spirit-empowered activity. That's why he's always using athletic language and metaphors to describe the Christian life calls us to walk, to race, to contest, to fight. Tells us to run, wrestle, watch, and stand firm when necessary. Oh, we need to recognize who we are by virtue of the fact that we belong to Christ. We must see ourselves dead upon Calvary's cross. That is the flesh. We must recognize that now we live by the Spirit. And since we are alive by the Spirit... We are now empowered to walk by the Spirit. The fourth truth is this. What exactly does it mean to walk by the Spirit? Here it is. To walk by the Spirit is to keep in step with the Spirit. Now it is confusing. Go back to the 16th verse. But I say walk by the Spirit. You got it? And now verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit and I understand perfectly why in the English we would read that and we would conclude "Well, Paul's saying the same thing. Problem is this, different words in the Greek. Different words with different meaning. In the first instance, verse 16, he's speaking, yes, the course of life. In verse 25, when he says, walk by the Spirit, he is using a word that means to learn to keep in step with the Spirit. It's used in reference to children. As they learn to walk. And so there's a child, I don't know, what are they, 12 months, 13 months, 14 months, I've forgotten, somewhere around, I better, two years, maybe in the cases of some, I don't know. But uh, the confidence grows, they're tired of the crawling, and eventually they pull themselves up on the couch, the sofa, the chair, or whatever. And they take that first step, Step, venture back to take a couple of steps. Down they go, kerplunk. And it might not be a couple of days till they try again. They try again a little further this time. Mommy and daddy are babbling fools at this point and urging them on and encouraging them and all sorts of inducements to come further, just a little further. And eventually seven, eight steps. The next thing you know, the kid is running wild around the house. And you wonder to yourself, why did we ever encourage him to walk like this in the first place? But it is step by step. That's the Christian journey. We walk by the Spirit. We keep in step with the Spirit. We learn to walk by the Spirit, step by step by step. That is an enormous subject. That is a theme that occupies much of Scripture. Let me summarize it for you in six points. Six points. A little cheeky on my part to summarize it in six points. But there you have it, the six. And I pray this will be an encouraging reminder to the old, worn warriors among us who have been walking, keeping in step with the Spirit for years. I pray this will be a challenge to some who perhaps have been careless and downright negligent in this regard. I pray for our young people. This will be a great introduction. As to what exactly does this mean? Summed up six points quickly, here they are, number one. To keep in step with the Spirit means, firstly, to learn, to put on, Paul's language, Romans 13, 14, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. There's step number one, baby step number one. We learn to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And make no provision for the flesh to gratify his desires. Now you should be thinking to yourself, hang on, I belong to the Lord Jesus. That means I've already put on the Lord Jesus. Yes, it is. That is our identity, our position in Christ. What's Paul's point when he says, learn to put on the Lord Jesus? His point is, I know who you are in the Lord Jesus. What I'm now commanding you to do is simply this. Act like it. That's all he's saying. Put him on daily. Recognize who you are in the Lord Jesus, that the flesh lies there, is, hangs there languishing upon Calvary's cross, crucified, buried. You now live by the Spirit. And so it means daily acknowledging who you are in Christ Jesus and to live according to that new identity in Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Provision means what? Forethought. Don't give it any forethought recognize where the flesh rears its ugly head and how we are susceptible to it and cut it off at the roots and make no provision, make no allowance. Don't go down that road. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Second step is this. Oh, we devour the word. Without the word, you're dead, friend. You're dead. The spirit of God speaks and works through the word of God. Christ reigns now, We, we made reference to this earlier. There he is seated in glory and the father sends out the spirit via the son and the son rules through the spirit and the spirit works through the word. This is how he has been working, building his kingdom, converting his people to himself, sanctifying them, growing them in his graces. This is how he's been doing it since Pentecost and it is how he will do it in our day. There is no walking, there's no learning to walk without the word. Oh, Psalm 119, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Here's the third step, keeping in step with the Spirit. We plead with God. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I identify my weaknesses, my proneness to sin. I identify where the flesh still, oh, Talk about troubling and tormenting. Where it still gives me such a hard time. And and that becomes the content of my prayer. Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. Help me with this. By your grace, give me victory over that. By your strengthening, comforting, quickening, alivening spirit. Help me to see who I am in Christ and make no provision for that. And I beg it of God daily. I plead it from his hand daily. And I, and, and, and I turn to his grace. And I remember J- James' great admonition. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives what? Bountifully and without reproach. Fourth step is this. We consider the consequences of sin. Wisdom cries out in Proverbs 8, 36. All who hate me love death. All who hate me love death. Oh, the consequences of sin are innumerable. And the wages of sin are incalculable. Fifth step, we confess our sin. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so you blew it this morning. I blew it yesterday. We all blew it on Friday. Whatever. Don't wallow in it, my friend. Don't wallow in the sin and the shame. You run to Calvary's cross get yourself in the shadow of the cross and you plead the merit of Christ and you take hold of this verse that if I confess it, if I confess it, oh, it is his delight to forgive it. He is faithful and just to cleanse me of all sin, cleanse me of all unrighteousness. And here's the sixth point of what it means to keep in step with the Spirit. Perhaps the most important of them all Certainly near the top, we look to Christ. We look to Christ. Colossians 3.1. Seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Daily, we must marvel. We must marvel in God's redeeming love towards sinners in Christ Jesus. Marvel at it. I stand amazed, as the old hymn writer declared, I stand amazed at at this thought, at, at, at this reality, this truth, that the Son of God poured out His life upon Calvary's cross for me. I stand amazed by it. And as I grow in my amazement of it, of Him, the corresponding result in my life is what? It is poverty of spirit. It is humility. And hear this. With this I will conclude. The flesh cannot thrive where there is humility. It is an absolute impossibility. The flesh cannot thrive where there is humility. Humility flows from amazement and wonder Of Christ's humiliation and selfless sacrifice. His offering of himself as a fragrant aroma to God himself upon Calvary's cross. And our amazement flows from what? Our daily looking to Christ. Oh, keep in step with the Spirit. And as we keep in step with the Spirit, again, what is the overarching theme in this entire section? That. That. Is true freedom. Do you want to be free? Keep in step with the Spirit. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you give us wisdom in these things. We pray that you give us strength for these things, enabling by your Spirit who dwells in us. And we ask it for your glory among us and beyond. We ask it for the eternal glory of your Son, the Lord Jesus, again, the one who loved us and gave himself up for us. This we pray. Receive our thanks in Christ's most worthy name. Amen.